fully expect in early 2018, we will be permanently out from Financial Review Commission oversight because we will have made budget and paid our bills for three years in a row. Self-determination will be back. That was Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan at his recent State of the City speech. Duggan is also, of course, running for re-election this year in 2017. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We are going to spend this hour talking with Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan about the last four years during which he has been mayor and talk about what he would do if he's reelected to another four-year term this year. And of course, we want to hear from you this hour. 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. 313-577-1019. What do you want to ask Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan about his performance so far or the things that he is promising that he will do in the next four years. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Also, we are Facebook living from the WDET studios this uh, this morning, so you can take a look at Mayor Mike Duggan answering my questions and yours uh, on Facebook if you have it. Again, 313-577-1019. It's been a pretty extraordinary four years. We, uh, the mayor has seen the city through the end of bankruptcy proceedings in court. He's turned streetlights on throughout the city where there were none, and he's mounted an aggressive blight removal campaign. But the mayor will not go unchallenged in the primary race for mayor this year. A couple other candidates already say they are going to run against him, including the son of former mayor Coleman Young. So here to talk about why he'd like to stay for another term as mayor of Detroit and what he would recommend as reasons that he should be reelected to another four years is Mayor Mike Duggan, welcome to Thanks. Detroit Today. Thanks for having me back, Stephen. Absolutely. Let's start right there with the sort of question at hand. What's the, if you had to point to two or three things at the top of the list uh, that you would put in front of Detroiters as the reason that they should return you to the Manoogian, what would they be? Well, the work's not done. I mean, I think it's, it's that simple. So, uh, you know, we got 11,000 houses down. Uh, we still got 20,000 more uh, to go. Uh, the unemployment rate has gone from 18% to 9.8%. It's been cut in half in the last three years. Still the highest unemployment rate uh, in the state of Michigan. Uh, you know, we've got now, uh, we became the first big city in America uh, to offer uh, guaranteed tuition for two years of community college from every single Detroiter who graduates from a Detroit high school. Uh, and we had 600 students this last September uh, uh, start community college under the Detroit Promise this year. Uh, if you've got a 3.0 grade point average and a 21 in your ACT, you're going to be guaranteed four years at the university. Uh, but we're going to have to find a way to work with the Detroit public school system uh, to make sure uh, that our young people are getting the kind of education. Now that we have college paid for, uh, now we got to go back and, and do the hard work. And, and I'm working as hard as I can with uh, the new school board, uh, President Iris Taylor and the interim superintendent, Alicia Merriweather. Um, but there's a lot more to be done. Yeah. Uh, I, I think looking at uh, who's getting into the race at this point, who's gotten into the race at this point, uh, it's pretty easy to see what the narrative is going to form around here uh, for this campaign. Uh, Coleman Young Jr. has talked about 
talked a lot in his Senate career about the people who are sort of left behind in places like Detroit, people who are not experiencing uh, the benefits of the bounce back that we are seeing in places like uh, downtown and midtown. Um, how do you how do you see that issue? A uh, and B. Talk about some of the things that uh, you have done and want to do to continue to try to sort of bridge that gap uh, between those places. Yeah. Well, well that that cuts uh, two ways, and uh, you know, people and businesses left this city for sixty years, uh, and it's taken a long time, and uh, we're moving uh, the right direction in the last three. But this is the great thing about campaigns. Senator Young's going to have to defend his record. And we're still trying to figure out in the seven or eight years in Lansing, what has he done for the neighborhoods? What has he done to reduce poverty? What has he done for the schools, which were under the control of the state of Michigan? Uh, And so we're going to have a conversation uh, that goes two ways. And what have you done uh, is is going to be uh, a significant issue. But people in the neighborhoods... And I think I have enormous support in the neighborhoods. I'm still doing a house party every week in somebody's living room in a neighborhood. And what I hear from people over and over is the lights are on, the buses are running, the parks are open again, bulk pickup is being done twice a week when somebody does an illegal dumping, DPW comes in and and cleans uh, uh, cleans it out. Uh, The demolitions have made progress, but we know we've got a long way to go. And now with this new start with this $30 million strategic neighborhood fund uh, in, in the Livernoy McNichols area, in West Village, and in the Clark Park area in southwest Detroit, we've got uh, foundations willing to put significant money into neighborhoods as they did 10 years ago uh, into Midtown. And we're going to, uh, they've seen the benefits there and we're starting to extend it. And I think people understand the progress we've made. Uh, and everybody will make their own judgment as to whether somebody uh, could have made more progress in the last three years than I did. And if they think they could have made more, they should vote for them. Yeah. One of the things that I always try to do when I'm talking about the city and the way the sort of trajectory that things are headed is to is to temper expectations, right? That that uh, yes, the bankruptcy helped enormously to to reset the city's finances and free up some money that was going to debt to be able to go to services, but it it didn't put us in, uh, or, or I should say, it didn't put us out of uh, financial peril. Uh, and so, the ability to make change in all hundred and thirty nine square miles of Detroit is is cabin by how much how much resources you have isn't it? I mean there's still we still have a long way to go in in getting more money into the city of Detroit well well I'll never be a mayor who spends money we don't have we've had mayors for years who spent money we didn't have and that's how we ended up with Kevin Orr and that's how we ended up uh, in uh, bankruptcy but Stephen you look at, at 2000 to 2010 this city lost 2,000 people a month for a decade, uh, and it wasn't the very poor who were moving out to the suburbs. And so not only were our neighborhoods devastated, but the economic base to support our services uh, uh, was devastated as well. And and so we're coming back at it a step at a time. You saw the Census Bureau's in 2015, we lost 250 people a month, the lowest in a half a century. In May, we're gonna see what the 2016 numbers are when the Census Bureau uh, are. Uh, releases their numbers, but in most neighborhoods in this city, 
home sale prices have increased dramatically the last two years. And that's because more and more people are staying. You drive, just drive any neighborhood in the city. You see people working on their houses. You didn't see that at all three years ago. People couldn't move out fast enough. And so uh, at least from my interactions with uh, people in the neighborhood, I think there's, there's a fair amount of appreciation that we have a long way to go. Uh, but the last three years, uh, uh, there's a, we've gone the right direction. I think the one thing I see is hope. So, so when you encounter people who are not seeing the benefits, right? And I imagine as much as you're out in the city, you, you do. People whose neighborhoods uh, are not bouncing back, people who have not been able to find jobs, uh, people who don't have great schools, in their neighborhoods, even though you're not uh, in charge of uh, education in the city. What do you tell them about when? I mean, that's the question I hear a lot is, when is when is it our turn? Uh, when, when are we going to see the things that, that everybody else is? And, and these are hard conversations, and you're right, I have them every day. So I, I was with uh, uh, somebody at a union meeting the other night who said, uh, there's still five abandoned houses uh, on my block. And I said, you know, we have been going from the most dense to the least dense. And we're taking down this year 5,000 houses, the most anybody in America has ever tried. But we still got 20,000 to go. And, and so what I say to folks in that situation is, one, are your streetlights on? The answer is invariably yes. Are police and ambulances showing up faster to your neighborhood? Is your local park cut and open? Are the buses running on time? And, and They'll say those things are true, but when I see how fast things are coming back in downtown and midtown, and I look at my block, it feels unfair to me. And it's a really hard conversation to have. And so we've done a number of things uh, in the areas that we haven't been able to get to yes, on de- yet on demolition. We started a program where we'll deliver plywood for free to your neighborhood on the weekends. We've had hundreds of board-up parties, uh, 2,000 houses Abandoned houses have been boarded up where the city provided the wood, the neighbors provided uh, the work. And then when we get to the area, in a number of cases, the houses have been preserved to the point where we can sell them and move a family in instead of just knocking them uh, uh, down. So what we talk about in those areas are, have you formed a block club? Can we partner with your block club? What can we do together? You want to organize a cleanup? We'll get a dumpster there and we'll, uh, we'll haul it away. And we try to create partnerships. But these are these are hard conversations. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan. We are talking about the past four years that he's been mayor here in the city. Uh, the prospect for another four years. He has decided that he will seek re-election to ask the citizens of the city of Detroit to return him to the Manoogian mansion for four more years. What is he saying we can expect out of that next four years? Uh, Of course, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, We'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, I I imagine, Mr. Mayor, that one of the other issues that will come up uh, during the campaign is the performance of uh, your your blight removal program through the land bank. Uh, You pointed out the highlights already in this conversation, but but there have been some real problems with that as well. And there is an ongoing federal investigation. Uh, at, At this point, what would you would you admit that there were mistakes made in the way that that was 
executed? Uh, are there things that you wish you had done differently? Yeah, there's no question. So when I came in and, and they, they showed me a number of 40,000 abandoned houses need to be taken down, the city had historically taken down 25 a week. You just get out your calculator, it's going to take 31 years. And that wasn't acceptable. But if you do the basic math, if we could do 100 a week, we could get it in eight years. We get 200 a week, we could do it in four years. To me, taking down abandoned houses was a life and death issue. We've had a number of women assaulted in these vacant houses. We've had fires that have spread from the vacant houses and made the family next door homeless. Uh, we've had all kinds of tragedies. And so I pushed the land bank to go from 25 a week to 200 a week faster than they had the internal controls uh, in place to do it. The feds last August suspended us for 60 days, said you gotta put new controls in place. We put the new controls in place in October. We're back up and running uh, full speed ahead. We've resolved our financial issues with the feds uh, in a way that, that I think we're both comfortable with uh, and we're moving forward. But the interesting thing, Stephen, is this, when I do these house parties, I never get the question, how much does it cost uh, to demolish a house, what's the cost of land bank? The question I get is, when are you getting to the houses in my neighborhood and can you speed it up? Uh, and so, like so many things, there's a disconnect between what's in the media and what people in the neighborhoods uh, are feeling. And well, it's not just the media. I mean, there are rules that govern the way that you can take down the, these houses, and you guys, in some instances, you broke those rules. There's no question about it, and we've admitted we've broken the rules. Uh, and what's on people's minds now. But the fact is, the feds restarted the program last October. We're going full speed ahead. They've approved the new rules. Uh, and so I won't tell you uh, that we haven't made mistakes. We learn from the mistakes. But if you look at what's happened in the past, we had, you know, the, the Detroit Housing Commission was put under federal receivership for 10 years when they messed up. Uh, you had the, the police department was under a justice department oversight for 13 years. Uh, in our case, we had a suspension for 60 days. We admitted our problems. I never denied that we did it. We took responsibility. We fixed the processes. And the demolitions are moving full speed ahead again. And I don't know what to do besides saying we went too fast, we made mistakes, we fixed the mistakes, uh, and we're back out removing blight. Are you concerned that uh, the, federal, the federal investigation will uh, turn up criminal I've seen. I've seen no evidence of that at all. You don't think that we'll see that? I've seen no evidence. I mean, I was the prosecutor, so I know the prosecutors know more than the others, but this has been going on for a year and a half now. I've seen no evidence of anything criminal. I've seen a lot of mistakes because they were moving fast. This land bank, when I got elected, had six employees. Today they have 110, uh, and they had to grow to 110 because they're not just demolishing houses. They're doing auctions. They're suing abandoned property owners. They've sold 6,000 side lots. They've done a lot of good in this city. Uh, to go from six employees to 110 at the pace that I pushed them, um, you know, they made some mistakes. But I have not seen any evidence of anything criminal, and there hasn't been any suggestion uh, of, of anything criminal. Okay. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation again. Uh, Joey on Twitter says, I'm a West Village homeowner, great neighborhood, but our alleys are in horrible condition. Uh, who's responsible for alleys? This is something that I have noticed also around the city. When I was a kid, of course, the alleys were sort of wide open and they used to do garbage collection through uh, the alleys. They don't anymore. And in many cases, they're just grown over with uh, with brush and then there's garbage back there. What's the what's the story? You're, with you're exactly right. When I was a kid in Detroit, the same thing. The garbage truck came down the alley on garbage day. The rest of the time you played back in the right, alleys. Right. Uh, but the city about 40 years or so ago moved 
trash removal to the street and, and turn the alley properties back over to the adjoining neighbors. And so in the great majority of alleys in the city, uh, the alley is the property of the neighborhood. You've got neighborhoods where they move their fences all the way back to each other and close the alley. You've got neighborhoods where they have garages where there's entrance from the alley, so they left them open. You've got other neighborhoods where the alleys are just sitting there. Uh, but the alleys are the responsibility of the adjoining property owners. And uh, if you work with our district managers, if the neighbors want to come out and clean the alleys, we'll bring a dumpster out to, to facilitate that. Uh, but in the great majority of cities, the, the alleys are the property of the uh, adjoining yeah. property owners. Okay, no surprise. We've got lots of callers who want to take part in this conversation. Uh, Anthony and Romulus, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh-huh. Um, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. One of the things that you said to judge you when you got elected was getting the population of the city to grow. Right. How has that worked out so far? And I have another question, more so a complaint that the Department of Public Works always forget. When it gets cold and icy, they never ice, they never stop the Lafayette Bridge at Rosa Park. And that's a dangerous <laughs> intersection at night and very slippery. Okay, so right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a note of the Lafayette Bridge at Rosa Parks and, and ask DPW to pay special attention. Um, but the... Uh, uh, in 2014, the Census Bureau said we went from what had been 2,000 uh, people a month leaving the, the city. It went down in 2014 to 500 a month. In 2015, it went down to 250 a month. In May, we're going to get the Census Bureau report on 2016. I don't know if this will be the year that we've actually gained or we're going to be darn close. Uh, so we'll see in May. But there's no question that the trend is moving dramatically uh, the right direction. Are, are you confident that, uh, that you have stopped the 60-year slide in Detroit population. Oh, yeah. I mean, you just, just go look in the neighborhoods and see the number of people working on the houses. Uh, but when you take the two burned-out houses off a block, people go in and fix up the other two that were beautiful brick homes that they'd walked away from because they thought the neighborhood didn't have a future. It's just fascinating to watch now that as the property values are growing, and most neighborhoods in this city have seen a 50% increase in their sales prices in the last two years. As those property values go up, people are coming back and fixing up houses that they walked uh, away from. So um, we'll see in May whether we actually hit the magic tipping point or we're just short. Uh, obviously, I hope we have. Yeah. But if it isn't this year, it'll be next year that Detroit uh, has growth. Yeah. Uh, Corey, on the north side of Detroit, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. Um, my question actually touches, touches on that, um, the slide and the slope that you're saying of people leaving. And, and, you know, you see it gradually growing and growing. But I think residents of the city are blind if they don't see that there's more and more people moving in every day. And my question is, um, I, I know you touched on it before, the correlation between car insurance and claiming Detroit as your residency. Um, as a millennial, I see it every day, you know, people moving down here, but they keep their residence in the suburbs because of car insurance. I'm hoping yeah. as we get closer to this you know, 2020 census that we have a solution for that. So you're absolutely right. That's going to yeah. be fixed in your next. Corey, yeah. great question. You're, you're, that's exactly the way we're and looking I, at this. And I sort of want to follow that up. Uh, I think that connects to a larger issue, which is the idea of new people coming to Detroit and the tensions that exist when that's true, when uh, when uh, people who haven't lived here for a long time or never lived here come here 
and move into neighborhoods that are full of other people who've been here a long time. A lot of times there's a, a, a set of cultural disagreements. There's a set of expectations that are different. I mean, there are a lot of things that, that, that come up uh, when you start to sort of regrow a city that we're starting to see here in Detroit. So uh, address Corey's point and then try to talk some. So that, that's, yeah, well. you, you've got a second, uh, second question there. But let me start with Corey's point. He's absolutely right. Uh, I would say 60% of the people who live in the riverfront apartments or in the David Whitney building or in the Broderick Towers are not claiming Detroit addresses uh, for exactly the reason he says. They're using a relative's address in the suburbs. It means they're not paying income tax. They're not contributing to the police and fire services that they're getting. Uh, and it means when we hit 2020, we got a serious issue uh, with an undercount with in the census. The, census. Uh, the only people who can fix the car insurance issue are the state legislators. The law of this state in 1973, when they passed the no-fault law, says you cannot drive a car legally in the state of Michigan unless you have no-fault insurance, and they proceeded to make it. It wasn't originally in 73, but this crazy system where you say doctors and hospitals and caregivers can charge whatever they want, and you have to pay for it through your car insurance, has put us in a situation where an MRI costs you $600 if you're covered by Blue Cross, but costs $3,600 if you go in under car insurance, and it's being completely uh, abused. This was never what was intended. Uh, And so I tried last year to say, okay, if you can't pass something statewide, I know something about the hospital and medical care system, give us an option. We'll do de-insurance in Detroit. You can buy your Michigan insurance if you want, but we're the only state in America that says, even if you have healthcare, Blue Cross or Health Alliance Plan or Medicare, Medicaid, whatever you have, you have to buy your insurance a second time on your car insurance and it gets funded 100% out of the car insurance. It's absolutely crazy. Uh, People oppose us, including some Detroit legislators, including, sure. for example, Senator Young. Right. Uh, and to me, it's... Well, the it, argument that they have uh, is that this is setting up essentially a second-class uh, citizenship for Detroiters that, that we would not be, if you signed up for de-insurance, you wouldn't have the same level of coverage that other people have. More than half of Detroiters today are driving without insurance. But what I was offering was a second option. You could still buy your $4,000 Michigan insurance. Nobody was taking it away. But what I was going to say was, here's a second plan. Uh, But if you go and buy Obamacare today, you have a gold uh, level, you've got a silver level, you've got a bronze level. Any type of insurance you can buy the appropriate threshold for you. No fault in Michigan has two standards. You can either afford the most expensive Uh, insurance in America or you drive illegally. And this is why the NAACP has taken this on as a civil rights issue, uh, because we got half of Detroiters driving without insurance. So uh, I, the new speaker of the house, Tom Leonard has, this as his number one priority. He said to me, can we get away from de-insurance and work with us on a statewide solution? Right. And I'm good with that because as I was pushing de-insurance, there were legislators in other parts of the state are saying, wait a minute, car insurance in Ohio costs $900 a car. Car insurance in the rest of Michigan costs $1,700 a car. You've got people being screwed by auto insurance across the state. So we're going to try and strike an alliance and fix this statewide. What's your What's your sense of the political viability of that solution at this point, given the, the, the trouble that this legislature has getting about anything done at this point? Uh, we've made progress on the Democratic side. 
Uh, and, and there's a number of Detroit legislators now who have realized I can't just keep saying to people, uh, no, you got to pay $3,500 or $4,000 a car and I don't have a solution. Let me complain about redlining. Uh, people are getting tired of the excuses. People are starting to understand only the state legislators can fix this. Uh, and and I, I'm really optimistic we're going to get it done this year. Okay. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Gene in Detroit, Charlie in Detroit, you are up next. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. WDET, bringing you culture and information that empowers our community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan, mayor for four years, uh, is asking the city of Detroit to reelect him to another four years this year. You want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. You can also watch today's conversation on Facebook Live. If you're a Facebook member, uh, check it out on the WDET page there. Uh, Mr. Mayor, before we get back to the phones, I want to follow up on that last question we were talking about. We were talking about insurance, people moving into the city, not claiming residence, and then uh, paying insurance as if they still live in the suburbs. But that, I think, connects uh, to this this greater issue of new residents in the city, right? Uh, people are starting to move back to Detroit, and as somebody who was born here and saw all the people leave, uh, I, I, you know, I don't think anyone can say that's a bad thing that we're attracting now, attracting people back. But of course, that raises all kinds of issues uh, in terms of new people versus old people, uh, what the expectations are on both sides. I think a lot of Detroiters, uh, longtime Detroiters, feel like they are being maybe pushed out or their concerns are being pushed out in favor of the interest of the new people. I, I just want to get a sense of your view of that issue and things that you think you might be able to do to sort of sew Detroiters together, uh, new and old. Oh, I say, well, number one, people are not being pushed out. We got 5,000 vacant houses that could be renovated today. We've got vacant uh, apartment buildings. Uh, and so people moving back is a good thing. But it's a neighborhood by neighborhood issue. Now, I've been in a lot of block clubs where the neighborhood associations are embracing everybody uh, moving back from any uh, background. I'm really proud of the fact, for example, 50 Syrian refugee families have been relocated in Detroit, mostly in the Warrendale area, and you haven't heard a word of complaint despite the kind of, of rhetoric you hear nationally. But then you've got the second question of, are we making sure that every part of the city is feeling open to everybody? And I was really pleased last summer. If you just went on the riverfront on any day, uh, the racial age, you could tell income mix, uh, the riverfront, the riverwalk is now becoming a gathering place for everybody. So you do something like the DeQuinder Cut that, that creates a bike path that gets you past all the downtown streets and up into Eastern Market, and you start to link that around the city. And when I talked to 10- and 12-year-old kids in neighborhoods, I said, how would you like to have your neighborhood connected that you can get on a bike and ride three or four miles 
uh, in being downtown Detroit on the waterfront. Uh, and we've got to find ways uh, to make sure that all Detroiters uh, feel welcome in every neighborhood. And, and I know it's an issue. It's something that uh, I think we have to, to work at every day. Uh, and and uh, I think the city's handling it reasonably well, but there's yeah. no doubt there's some anxiety. I mean, one of the things that comes up a lot is this question of, so you, you've got this tremendous activity going on downtown, uh, not just residential influx, but also business investment, private investment. We, we are building stadiums, things like that. Uh, too, too infrequently, I feel like there's not a direct line drawn between those activities and the things that people need in the in the neighborhood. So, for instance, uh, we had a question from uh, a listener about the idea of profits from some of these downtown experiences, the new stadiums, all those kind of things, uh, being allocated in some way directly to things like Detroit Public Schools or the public or the police department or the fire department. Why can't we draw those kind of direct lines? Again, they they are. I mean, we're in the process of hiring 300 police officers, and there's no doubt that the growth in the income tax revenue uh, that's a result of this is funding that. You, We are in the process of buying 19 new pieces of fire equipment, which will completely modernize the fire department, and I think ultimately drop homeowners insurance rates across the city. Again, uh, it's the fact that people are moving back and paying uh, income taxes, and in some cases, business taxes uh, that are paying for this. So if you saw what we just announced this week on the, the budget, when we came out of bankruptcy, there was a lot of talk about Detroit can't manage its own affairs. As soon as Kevin Orr is gone, it'll go back to the way it was. Not only are we beating budget, but we announced over the next seven years, we're going to add another $330 million to the pension fund uh, that is over and above what the plan of adjustment called for to make sure our retirees are never again put in a position where somebody comes in and says, uh, we're going to default. That is all the result of the fact that people and businesses are coming back. Uh, and so I can't say to you that the neighborhood police officer walking your beat uh, is being paid for because people moved into the David Whitney uh, directly, but I can tell you the city is running its third straight balanced budget. We've added 1,300 bus trips a week uh, these kinds of services are made possible. And you feel like those are those are direct benefits of the activity that we're the new activity that we're seeing. In it's it's like the ac- it's the activity in downtown and midtown, but it's also people moving back into vacant houses in the neighborhoods. In the neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but our revenues are running way ahead of what uh, uh, was projected during the uh, bankruptcy. Uh, and so, when I can stand up and say there's 1,300 more bus trips a week in a city that desperately needs them. Uh, it's because business and people are coming back. Yeah, uh, let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to Detroit today. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Good hey. morning, Your Honor. Good morning. You? You good. Good to hear your voice, Gene. Go ahead. Excellent. Uh, I'd like to ask the mayor why the negotiations between the Detroit Association of Realtors and the city to uh, provide more affordable housing options for our low-income citizens have not yet borne fruit. Again, I don't know about the Detroit realtors, but if you heard my State of the City speech, we have opened seven new um, housing projects with affordable housing in the last three years. We have eight more coming on shortly. In fact, I'll be joining Reverend uh, uh, Adams uh, at the Hartford uh, uh, affordable housing uh, site that they just completed over on Myers uh, near uh, Seven Mile Road. 
Uh, but we've got eight more coming online. Uh, and the Illiches will be very shortly announcing three new apartment buildings around the hockey arena, and each one of them will have a minimum of 20% uh, of the unit set aside for affordable housing. So we are rapidly uh, increasing uh, the affordable housing, in many cases renovating old apartment buildings uh, to do it. Yeah, uh, Gene, thanks very much for the question. Let's go to Charlie. Charlie in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call, mm-hmm. and uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor, for coming on the show. I thank you. just want to thank you, Mayor Duggan, for running uh, and applaud you for all you've been able to accomplish. Um, my father and I own a business in Delray. Uh, he founded it in 67, cleaning up an oil spill for Ford Rouge plant, and um, we've invested in our business in Delray over the years uh, and um, employ 60-some people. Next to our, one of our buildings on uh, Melville Street, a uh, vacant house burned and uh, did a lot of damage to our building. After that house was knocked down, I was able to buy that house from the city. There are three more lots next to it that I've been trying to buy for over three years, which the city owns. I have talked, applied to the real estate department, applied to Land Blank, even sent a letter to you, Mr. Mayor, and I can seem to get no answer as to why uh, they're not selling the lots, except that I was told that it might have to do with the moratorium on lot sales in Delray connection with the Gordy Howe Bridge. So I want to invest are, in these are, lots. Are you in lots, the clean them up? So let okay. me ask you this: Are you in the take area for the bridge, or you're outside of it? Uh, we're just, um, uh, I guess, we'd be west of uh, West End or Springwell. So we're kind of down by Tug Island. Uh, so, so they're north. not. So they're not. You're saying they're not going to take your property for the bridge. Uh, well, I don't know. They're refusing, according to someone in the real estate department, there's a moratorium on sales of those lots by the city because of the bridge. doesn't okay. make sense to me. So, Mr. Maroon owns a whole block across the street. It's <laughs> okay. so, so, rumored to be a laydown area for the bridge material. So let me, so really, let me, let me ask you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we, we can solve this one way or another. If you're in the area that they are going to be taking for the bridge. We have put a hold on it because that property is going to go over to the state of Michigan to build the bridge. If you're outside of the take area, I can't think of any reason why we can't sell you those lots. So maybe we can get your contact information off air uh, and we will follow up with you today. But if you're outside the take area, uh, you should be able to buy those lots without a lot of bureaucracy. And I need to find out why you're having that issue. You know, uh, Mr. Mayor, the the, the issue of Lots, uh, property, and ownership in Detroit, of course, comes up a lot. Uh, Charlie's question, I think, is a good sort of example of the the many different wrinkles we see of this. But but going back to the land bank question, I mean, the land bank owns a lot of property in the city, uh, and it gets more every year because of the the process that we go through with tax foreclosures. Uh, talk about where you think we are with the. Uh, uh, security, land security for people in, in the city of Detroit. Uh, the land bank owns a lot of it. Uh, tax foreclosure puts it in there. Are these lots being recycled or recirculated back to Detroiters uh, or are they being sold at auction off to, to, to other people? Well, that, so let's start with this. We've sold 6,000 lots in the last two years to the next door neighbor, side lots. So 6,000 homeowners in this city uh, have the lot next door. That's why the last caller, uh, I'm not sure why we wouldn't have automatically sold them the side lots because that's our policy for 100 bucks a lot. Uh, and if you 
uh, are own the house next door, are current in your taxes, and and the, and the land bank owns the property, you can go to the, to buildingdetroit.org today, put in $100 in your credit card charge, buy the lot next door, and fence it in, put in a garden, a swing set as people have done across the city. Then you get to your second question. And I wanted everybody to be able to secure the land next to them, because in many cases, they've been cutting that vacant lot for years. Right. But now, what happens about the, the lots across the street? We don't just let people come in and buy the lots across the street. You can buy a house on our auctions, and we're auctioning three houses a day. Um, and so the question is, what happens then? And a couple of times when we did it, somebody, one, one case on the east side, they put in some play equipment, and the neighbor across the street complained about the noise from the kids. Uh, and so what we're going to roll out very shortly is the next step, which is, uh, we're going to take a, a program we're going to call a, a lot license program, and we're going to try this out. We're going to say you can lease these lots for $25 a year for the next three years, and you can put you can have off-street parking, you can have a community garden, you can have a play area, only one condition. Your block club has to approve you being the user. So I don't want City Hall deciding what goes into these neighborhoods. And so in the next month, we're going to be sending up an ordinance to City Council and we've, we've identified seven or eight square miles where we're going to test this out, where neighborhood groups are going to make decisions themselves uh, who ought to be able to license these lots uh, and, and do it. But, you know, the, the land bank owns 93,000 parcels of land. I mean, that's three times the size of Dearborn. Nobody's yeah. ever dealt with property of this magnitude. Uh, and, and we want to find ways uh, to let the people who live in the neighborhoods decide what happens in their neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. I am talking with Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan about the last four years and what we would expect to see over the next four years if he is reelected this year. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Trey in Detroit, you're up next. Welcome Good morning. To the show. Yeah. Hey, Good morning. And uh, good job overall, Mr. Mayor. Thank you. We're happy. Um, but um, I took the Bedrock tour just last week, and a, an interesting coincidence, uh, Banco Lay Thompson was our speaker at Rotary, and he wanted to know, and we wanted to know, we were kicking around in the Rotary meeting, whether or not you ever talked to uh, Dan Gilbert about the diversity of his workforce, which you know gets to look kind of like the restaurant scene downtown, uh, only restaurant scene yeah. even. Uh, Trey, great question. Yeah. Uh, gets gets to this larger issue also about whose who's Detroit is whose and, and uh, you know, who's welcome here, who's, who's being sort of uh, cared for, whose interests are being cared for in this revitalization. And it's a question mm-hmm. I hear a lot. And, and I not only talked to Dan Gilbert, I talked to every major employer uh, in town uh, about this and, uh, and, and as far as employment, as far as senior management and visibility, uh, these are important issues. The interesting thing, and he hasn't talked about this publicly, um, but but Dan Gilbert sat down with uh, Alicia Merriweather, the, the interim superintendent of the schools, uh, in, in a meeting that I arranged, and they are starting a program now where Dan is using these shuttle buses you see downtown mm-hmm. and sending them to Detroit public schools to get sixth, seventh, eighth graders a couple of days a week, shuttling them down to Quicken offices where Quicken employees are mentoring the kids with their homework and the like, and it's doing two things. One is 
uh, you get the benefit of, of the mentoring and the tutoring. But second, uh, for a number of these young people, they haven't been downtown, which sure. seems strange to be from outside Detroit to think that somebody who, who lived up near Seven Mile hasn't been downtown. I hear that all the time, and, though. And, it's, and, it's, and so the question is, how do we make this feel like one city? And so he's done this quietly, uh, but the idea uh, uh, that Quicken would feel a responsibility to have that connection. And of course, these young people look around these offices and said, these are the kinds of career opportunities that are available. Uh, and so uh, we have more work to do. Uh, but I've been pretty pleased at the way our, our, our workforce uh, leaders, and we have, as we call it, Detroit at Work now, uh, pretty much every major employer in town is on the Detroit at Work board, and we are tracking Detroiters into training programs and get them hired uh, in the city. And that's ultimately the way we're going to change the trajectory of poverty. Yeah. All right. When we come back, we will conclude our interview with Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019. Also go to the WDT Facebook page or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan, has been mayor for four years here in the city, uh, is now asking Detroiters to reelect him uh, this November uh, for another four years. If you want to join the conversation, have a question for the mayor, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. You can watch us live in this interview on Facebook Live, if you remember there. Uh, also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, we had a listener question before the show. Mr. Mayor, about uh, DDOT. Uh, of course, uh, DDOT has seen a lot of change in the last four years. We got more buses on the road. We got more drivers to drive those buses. But uh, this is far from a region where transit uh, is even uh, is, is even remotely sufficient. Uh, we saw the the funding for the RTA fail again last November, the 40th time or so that we have failed to come up with. Uh, a transit plan here in southeast Michigan. What is what's your view of uh, where we are with transit? How are we doing on that issue? And what are the things that we still need to get done? Well, at DDOT, we're obviously going the right direction. And the fact that two years ago, you didn't have 24-hour bus service in this city. Anybody who had a job that was getting off at two in the morning had to pay $25 for a, a cab fare uh, if they if they didn't own uh, car Now we have nine routes crisscrossing the city with 24-hour service and huge expansion. It's gotten better in Detroit. The region, uh, you know, this RTA structure just isn't working. Uh, and you've got an RTA board with nine members, uh, one appointed by the mayor of Detroit when Detroit has two-thirds of the riders. So the RTA was never something that was going to be particularly appealing to Detroiters. But today, you now have three bus systems operating on our streets. You've got DDOT, you've got SMART, and RTA is operating those green uh, flex buses. So now we've gone from two bus systems in the region to three bus systems in the region, and it wasn't a surprise to me that the voters aren't feeling confident 
uh, in the plan. But ultimately, I think the answer is, and I've started this conversation with Warren Evans and Brooks Patterson and, uh, and Mark Hackle. I met with the bus drivers on Saturday night uh, at DDOT and talked to them about this, and I think there's a lot of enthusiasm. We have to get a single regional system. It just makes no sense yeah. to, have, to have three different systems running on the same streets. I think if we could bring together a regional system and go back to the voters in November of 18 and show them a real plan, uh, I think it could pass. But I think if RTA just recycles the same plan and the same structure, I don't know why they'll have any different outcome. Yeah. Uh, I want to change the subject uh, briefly here to something you brought up last week with regard to pension projections coming out of the bankruptcy at one point, you had uh, said the city might sue Jones Day, uh, which was the the firm that Kevin Orr worked for, that who made these projections. Uh, I believe the city's backed away from that position, but still believes that uh, people were misled. Uh, talk about uh, my memory of that whole that whole sort of process was that we were told that uh, that revenue projections. Uh, had to come true in order for us to make the pension payments that we were going to make, and that if revenue didn't hold over the next couple of years, that we would have to make additional payments. Uh, the other thing, of course, that depends on is is actuarial projections, which can can change over time. Talk about why you think the city was deceived uh, by Jones Day, but then also talk about uh, whether we were deceived by by other people who were involved. I mean, the state was supposed to be watching this. Andy Dillon was the treasurer at the time. I believe this all happened. Uh, yeah, I think he was gone by then. But uh, what's the, the, the... So the, the problem was this, that we came out of bankruptcy in December of uh, 2014, and within just a few months, Gabriel Roeder, the actuary for the police and fire in general, uh, retirees pension fund came out with a report indicating it was seven hundred million dollars underfunded it had nothing to do with investments or income or anything else they said the assumptions that were used by the actuaries to get the bankruptcy plan approved assume people uh, were going to die earlier than the mortality tables showed that to me was very troubling uh, we've since understood there's there was correspondence in which this was done very consciously uh, to make the numbers work. And my feeling was uh, that before I testified or John Hill, our CFO, testified as to the feasibility of the plan, we should have been told there was significant debate and an adjustment on the mortality About those actuarial that went projects. into that. And, and I think it might have changed something. In any event, the question is this. The emergency manager law puts the emergency manager completely in control. And he knew. Uh, and so the question is, and, and at very minimum, this is a really troubling aspect of the emergency manager law that the local elected officials uh, were not privy uh, to changes in assumptions that put a $700 million hole uh, in the plant. Whether Jones Day's responsibility as they prepared me to testify uh, at that trial rose to this level and does it create a legal claim, our lawyers are looking at. Regardless of that, uh, we have a $700 million hole uh, from the plan that Judge Rhodes approved. And we're dealing with it responsibly. If we sue... It'll and that $700 million, we should say, is over, yeah, what, it's, it's 20, all, it's, 25 years? Well, well it's, it's in current dollars, but it has to be repaid over right. a period of time. What we proposed yesterday to the Financial Review Commission, which was very well received, was the uh, proposal we've taken to City Council, and I think City Council is, is going to support, which is the city is doing well enough we're going to put in an additional $330 million by 2023. 
and that pushes the problems out to about 2029, 2030. I can't believe we have a mayor of Detroit talking about balancing the budget in 2029, but that's the way we are approaching things today. I'm not going to leave to my successors uh, the kind of, of financial mess uh, that that put the city into uh, the situation we were in. So we are doing well. Uh, we think the plan we've proposed is a reasonable plan. Uh, whether the solution to this is a lawsuit or whether it is an amendment to the emergency manager law is something we're exploring uh, right now. But clearly... Uh, it was wrong that no elected officials knew what was yeah. going on in these assumptions. Uh, before before we end the show, I also need to ask you about school closings. Right. Uh, the state has a, a large number of schools in the city of Detroit that they say they want to close. They've been underperforming for, for three years or more. Uh, a lot of people, uh, including myself, think that's not a great idea. Close the schools. You, you, you absolutely devastate neighborhoods. Uh, what what role can you play in that process? Can you stop the school closures? Uh, if not, what, what else will you do? Well, I thought Rochelle Riley's column today was just outstanding and pointed out the fact that the three years of poor performance was when the All state of Michigan state. was running the schools. So the, the head of the state school reform office didn't have the least bit of interest intervening while the state was mismanaging the schools. But six weeks after the newly elected school board comes in, they discover this now newfound wanna... uh, urgency. But the thing is, closing a school doesn't improve the education anywhere. They don't have quality schools nearby. And Stephen, as you know, I pushed for a Detroit Education Commission that said we're going to build quality schools in both charter and traditional DPS so that we'll have options. What the state has done is say, no, we're not going to develop any quality alternatives. Uh, we just want you to close this down. Uh, my team has been working hand in glove uh, with the elected school board and with uh, uh, Superintendent Merriweather. Our lawyers are over there. Uh, and we're going to support them what they do. I believe it is very likely that the great majority of those school closings will not occur because you legally can't close a school when there's not an equal or better alternative available. Uh, and based on my conversations with the governor, I think the state is recognizing uh, that the approach that they've been taking is not the right one. Uh, are you confident that we can have another conversation at the state level about getting control of where schools open and close here in the city of Detroit, having yeah. options for kids in, in well, all neighborhoods? Well, the, the number one obstacle to getting it done the last time is now moved east. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm hopeful now uh, that we do have a, uh, uh, we do have an opportunity. We're going to take another shot at it. I've had a number of legislators come and said to me, this is exactly what you said was going to happen if we didn't do the DEC. You're going to have people closing schools with no alternatives. All over the place. And that's right. what I'm saying is we're tired of lancing decisions in the schools. So what I said is I don't want to run the schools. But what I would like to do is have the ability to approve where they open and close, give parents report cards, provide transportation options, and give them more choices. All right. Uh, Mayor Mike Duggan of the City of Detroit, thanks, as always, for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you more as the campaign unfolds. Uh, that's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. We'll see you tomorrow.